0: It, are, the, it, are the headphones turned up really loud?
1: No, but I can turn them down more.
0: You revealed that you were a little bit older than me, so I don't know what you're hearing. Is like. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Maybe I shouldn't say anything about ideology.
0: Welcome back. To the Curbsiders, the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-host, Dr. Stuart Brigham. Hello! Stuart, uh, where, where's Paul tonight?
2: Um, I would say something about his clatter of cats, but that's, that's kind of old now.
0: Yeah, I, I think he's actually uh, at a fancy conference in San Diego, which uh, we were too poor to go to. That's right. I'm sad. That's okay. I know. Watch. Like next year, if I'm able to go to the conference, it's going to be in like, I don't know if I want to alienate an area of the country. It's going to be in like North Dakota or something. We could always hold a garage sale with all of our old textbooks. (laughs) I actually want to visit North Dakota, so I don't mean to hate on North Dakota. Um, Okay. Tonight is a little bit of a uh, an experimental show, experimental in the sense that we're not going to be talking about a clinical topic per se. We are going to be talking uh, about super utilizers. Our guest tonight is Dr. Alex Lane. She is an assistant professor of medicine at Cooper University Hospital in Camden. Alex graduated from Jefferson Medical College before completing her residency in internal medicine at... Temple University, where she also completed a chief residency, and in her first year out of training, is now in a job as assistant program director in the internal medicine residency program at Cooper University Hospital. Hi, Alex. How are you doing tonight?
1: Hi, guys. I'm doing great.
0: Thanks uh, for taking the time away from the family to come on the show tonight. Uh, Very, very happy to have you here. Very excited about it. All right. Well, Alex, let's, let's get to know you a little bit. Uh, can you give us, if you had to do, uh, if you had to give us a one liner to describe yourself, kind of like you would do in the hospital, um, I'll give you an example of mine. So I, I'm a 34 year old male podcaster, internal medicine, nerd, husband and father of four. Mm. I have weird eating habits, likes
2: long walks on the beach
0: and an addiction (laughs) and an addiction to bad movies. So what would be, how would you uh, describe yourself?
1: Okay. Um, I am a 35-year-old female, uh, internal medicine doctor, very proud to be primary care, mother of a beautiful two-year-old boy and wife of an orthopod, and don't judge me for it.
0: You know, surprisingly, I know uh, just in my clinic <laughs> alone, there's there are two female internists married to orthopods. So I don't know, maybe it's like there's some sort of complimentary... There there must be. Alex, what is a book that you think every physician should read?
1: So this is such a hard question for me, because before I was in medicine, I actually worked in book publishing. And hmm. so I'm a avid reader. And it's almost like picking your favorite child. It's very hard for me to pick one book to, to recommend to
0: anybody. because That's like, it's so, it's like a Sophie's choice of books for you. Well, what would you, <laughs>
1: it, it is.
0: Yeah. Sorry. Let me rephrase this. Uh, what is a book that every physician should read? Um, let's say, let's say a medical resident and let's say it doesn't have to be medically related. It could be fiction or nonfiction, just something that you think would benefit them. Well, I <laughs> Matt, goodness! Is there a book in your house? Just <laughs> look at a bookshelf and tell just us. Look a at a book and <laughs> just name first one book single see? book
1: you can ever. After I like talked myself up too, I'm a little embarrassed. Uh, um, I you know it, it's just I, I think one of the books that. I, I, this is going to sound terrible, but I think some, some of the books that I have have spoken to me the most in terms of being a physician are actually books about the Holocaust um, okay. or people who have survived the Holocaust, which sounds kind of horrible. But I think that the idea that there's kind of meaning, meaning in things and um, meaning in things that seem hopeless or meaning in things that seem desperate, so... That's that's obviously very heavy and very maybe not something that you want to read while in your you're in residency because it can be very a, a very tough few years. But I think any t- any type of book where there is you know hope and darkness I think is is nice to to think about um and to and to kind of see how do people get through that because I think that's a lot of what we deal with is finding meaning in. Sadness and finding meaning in things that are seemingly meaningless. But there's a book called *Man's Search for Meaning*, and I I, I think that that's a, that's a nice a, a nice book by this that by a, a gentleman named Viktor Frankl who survived the Holocaust. And um, I found I think it it's kind of of that vein. It's not the only book like that, but it's it's of that vein.
2: And what w- what kind of hobby or activity or things outside of medicine gives you meaning aside from maybe reading?
1: being a mom and a wife and a daughter and a sister and a friend, all of those things. I, I, I spend a lot of time with my family, um, and with friends, I think out, you know, also we have animals. I love animals. And I think that also gives me a lot of meaning and a lot of, uh, stress reduction in my life is to have the animals around, even though they can be stressful in and of themselves. Um, And I mean, I, I feel like my job does give me a lot of meaning. So I, I'm happy to get that out of my job.
0: What is some of the best advice that you've received so far in your career?
1: I think one of um, the, the best pieces of advice um, from our, our joint former program director, Daryl and Moyer is she always said, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And I think that's a, that's really good advice because I think a lot of us who are perfectionists or or type A personalities can often lose sight of that things don't need to be perfect and, and you can move things forward without them being perfect. So I think about that actually a fair amount.
0: Yeah, I can definitely identify with that. I think a lot of procrastination and inaction can be just, if you're a perfectionist, just thinking of how hard it's going to be to get things exactly the way you want them is going to prevent a lot of people from starting to act. So I think that's great. Sometimes you just have to start things, make, they can be good enough and you can always make them better as you go along. But that's, I think that's really good advice. Uh, why don't you tell us uh, where are you finding time? You kind of told us that, that you are busy. Where are you finding time to read and keep up with the, the primary care, uh, the evidence um, it, just for your job? What, what sort of reading habit do you have? What, like specifically, when do you fit into your day and, and w- what are you reading?
1: This is one of the things I, I struggle with a lot. I think we all do because there's just so much to keep up with. Um, so I subscribe to the Annals and to New England Journal, and I stopped getting them delivered to my house because they were just pile. There was just piles of them all over <laughs> my house. Um, so I get them electronically, and I have a folder in my email. I'm obsessed with folders in my email um, for keeping a clean inbox. And one is just says to read. Um, So they just automatically all go there. Um, And then I get I also subscribe to the New England journals journal watch, which I find really great and helpful. It just gives you these little paragraph summaries of kind of the most important articles. Um, articles every day that are coming out and what they mean, what their clinical impact is. So I actually try to read the New England Journal, Journal Watch every single morning. Just um, I take the train to work. So it's a nice time for me to read. It's, you know, a 15 minute train ride. So I can just read. I read the you know, a couple of news articles and I read that. Um, for more in depth, I, I try to do it before bed, which is not a good time to do it, but I don't know when else I can do it. Um, and, and I, I try to, you know, I'd love to read more. I think we all would, but I try to read the things that I think will have the biggest clinical impact. And then I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit spoiled because I do, I do the didactics. And so when I'm digging into a topic for the didactics, I use that time to kind of re-educate myself and try to get the most up-to-date literature about, you know, X topic. And then, you know, I mean, I think we all do on the fly. If I'm in clinic, you know, I'm using up-to-date. I'm using Dynamed. Um, I'm I'm kind of using the quick tools that we all use just for refreshers and to see if anything um, new has changed and the I mean if you work with residents they're gonna they're often the best sources of the latest information because they're in you know they're in the hospital they're picking things up from the specialist they're challenging you with things so sometimes they're bringing stuff to me and then I'm looking it up with them and, and things like that.
0: You've you've basically hit on uh, a lot of the exact reasons why I like academic medicine and uh, and 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 some of the same tactics that I have for for my own learning because the. Um, Something that I realized, and I I think this comes from uh, JAMA Clinical Evidence, if you ever read that, um, that's a big uh, textbook, but they also have a website you can go to. And and basically what they talk about is there there are now physicians or researchers who are basically just paid to comb through journals and cherry-pick articles, give an expert summary, and tell you how they fit into clinical context. And that's a great place to start. When you are um, looking at the literature, because if you're if you're like me and you get like a bunch of journals to your house every month, they just kind of pile up yeah. and make you feel guilty that you're not reading. Them. Right. <laughs> so at a very minimum, um, I subscribe to Journal Watch as well. And uh, I think ACP has one and I know yeah. New, England, New England Journal has one. Mm-hmm. So subscribe to one of those and the journal, New England Journal will send you a free email every morning that is kind of like a mini version of Journal Watch. It's usually not as in depth, but it'll at least let you know what's happening, like when new guidelines are published that are relevant to your practice. So, really good advice. Thank you, Alex, for that. That's a great answer. Uh, let's let's see what we get with this. Uh, I, I know we always uh, say we're going to retire this question, but um, I'm going to ask it this time. Okay, though. go ahead. Stuart. So,
2: so Alex, what is something about yourself that you could that you you can tell us that maybe we'll just never forget. (laughs) (laughs) Just just maybe.
1: (laughs) Um, When I was three years old, I had acute mastoiditis and had to be hospitalized for six weeks.
2: Jeez. Hmm. Do you remember that?
1: Um, I remember being in the hospital and I was a very picky eater as a child. And so my parents would bring me in Food to the hospital every day, so I remember eating a lot of ice cream, and I remember walking up and down the halls, holding my little i v pulley.
0: oh my huh. gosh, as it, a parent now yeah. i just i i can't yeah. even I can't even think about kids being sick like I'd be a mess that's why I'm not a pediatrician
1: exactly i agree
2: is that is do you feel like that's one of the reasons why you want to become a doctor in the first place
1: it had not at all
2: not at all, okay. <laughs>
1: No, it's just a funny now when I see people uh, who, you know, have bad ear infections or it's just, oh I always just think about, it's so funny that I had this thing that's really actually been eliminated in like first world country, countries. I'm like, mom, dad, what was going on at our house? Um, but <laughs> you were like, pull,
0: you were pulling at your ear for weeks and they're like, <laughs> go to bed kid (laughs) you're okay my
1: my mom was like you were just such an angelic kid you never complained i'm like i don't know if that's the real story but
0: (laughs) a little bit of guilt i'm not i'm not going to comment on you as a resident uh (laughs) (laughs) okay well that's that's a good answer thank you you're welcome I do want to, I do want to just give, so some listeners, listeners of the show who emailed us actually have their own podcast, which I've heard uh, one episode of. It's called Barbell Medicine. It's by Austin and Jordan. Um, I'm not going to butcher their last names, but you can look up Barbell Medicine. It's Baraki and Fiegenbaum. Okay. Uh, Thank you, Stuart. You're welcome. (laughs) Uh so th- I thought you listened to the episode. So these gentlemen are medical oh my gosh. residents. Uh, I actually I think one's family medicine and one is internal medicine and they're still residents but they're putting on this show and they're actually like big time into weightlifting. Sorry guys if that's not how what you term it in your powerlifting? Powerlifting, weightlifting, but Basically, Strength training uh they they sent us you know that they they were fans of our show but they they also wanted to they also wanted to potentially come on the show which we are going to be having them on in the future because they have an interest in what's called sarcopenia which is basically i think we commonly call it as frailty when we're talking about patients so this is a huge problem right now elderly falling they're everyone's frail and what do we do we send them for physical therapy yep. and The studies, I mean, even two years of continuous physical therapy have mild to modest benefits. But you you say there's benefit. Yes, there is some benefit. But uh, Austin and Jordan uh, wanted to talk to us about sarcopenia because they actually do resistance training with these frail or elderly persons. And uh, there's ways to do that safely. I'm not sure how available this is everywhere, but they are uh, just some other young physicians that we're going to have on a future show, probably a future roundtable show like this one to talk about sarcopenia. So that podcast was Barbell Medicine. So stay tuned. It's going to be a heavy, hard-hitting episode. Yes. Thank you. You're welcome. Anytime. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Stuart's our pun guy. Um, I can't say that anyone's requesting the puns, but they just keep (laughs) coming. That's all right. Yeah. Uh, I do want to move on, Alex, to kind of the the main topic of the show. So why don't you tell us a little bit about super utilizers, hot spotting, and, and how did you come to, to be working in Camden at Cooper University?
1: Sure. So super utilizers are exactly what they sound like. Um, these are the patients who have... Often been labeled labeled by the physicians who see them, by other people who see them as frequent flyers. They are patients who use the healthcare system at a much greater uh, rate and amount than other people do, um, and they're really the the reason that one of the primary reasons, in my opinion, that our healthcare system has so much trouble. Just to give you the scope of the issue the top 1% of patients in all of our healthcare systems spend 23% of the healthcare dollars. So I think that kind of shows what we're really dealing with when we think about patients who the system is failing, that there are patients who for whatever reason we have not been able to treat with traditional models in a way that's helping them with their healthcare. So, that's kind of a basic understanding of, of who super utilizers are, why they're kind of have been gaining interest in the past, I'd say 10 to 15 years is because they are draining the healthcare system from so much money. And as um, laws are going into place and rules are going to place, such as the penalty for readmissions, as the time period of that those penalties are getting shorter, it's it's now incumbent for hospital systems to pay attention to this and say, why are these pe- people coming back and back and back? Why are we unable to treat them as outpatients? Um, and and how can we think about this problem differently? So hot spotting is um related but a different type of thing. So hot spotting is looking at when you look at these um patients you start to use mapping data so you basically gather a bunch of claims data, look at the people who are spending the most money in the healthcare system, and literally map them. Where are they living? Where are they going? What pharmacies are they going to? Who is their healthcare provider if they have one? How far away are they from the hospital, from a healthcare provider, from all these other things? You can look at a lot of different um, factors that go into it, but sometimes just location is um, such a driving force in. And where these people are coming from. So to steal very much from Jeff Brenner, who is the person that I learned um, most of the, this information from and who I think brought a lot of these ideas to a larger audience. Um, when he did when he started working on this idea, he found that a lot of the patients who were using the healthcare system. Um, the most were living in one um housing co- housing complex like a low income housing complex and by putting a healthcare provider in that complex you could end up saving the healthcare system in general money
2: i, I just want to ask you a question what what of kinds course. of what kinds of problems were these individuals being going to the er for going to their primary care doctor like what what kind of health issues were they dealing with
1: So what's interesting is when you look at these patients, they typically have both medical and social complexity, you know, all the same things that are killing people in the general population, heart disease, heart failure, lung disease, those are the same issues. The patients who are in this top tier of patients who are using the most most healthcare dollars the majority of, the, of them have at least three chronic medical conditions and almost to a person they have mental illness. So, you know, whether and that's including substance use, which is obviously a huge issue right now. We all know these patients, right? These are the patients that everyone kind of gets so frustrated with. So, you know, I can give you the example um, and not to go into too much detail to for, for HIPAA, but I can think of a patient when I was a resident who... Had um, a very poor health literacy, had mental illness and a lot of paranoia, and he had heart failure. And he would come to the hospital in a heart failure exacerbation. He would get diarrheased in the ED and he would leave against medical advice. Or sometimes he would get a little bit sicker and he'd have to stay overnight, but he he And he did this almost every day because he was afraid of taking pills at home. He did not have good social support and he did not understand his condition, nor did he understand where to go for help. And so he basically started coming to the ER and came to the ER. I mean, it was, it was almost a joke in our residency that we had a standing history and physical waiting for him because he came so often. And... Eventually, actually, he got worse and worse and worse, obviously, and he ended up dying in the hospital probably a year and a half after this started. And I watched this happen to this poor gentleman. And there are these, you know, so our healthcare system just failed him. Um, we completely failed this person, and so there's a lot of people like that who it's it's not just their medical conditions, it's their inability when they walk out of the doors of the hospital to navigate healthcare, to find where should they go for the next step, to afford a four dollar copay, unfortunately, to get away from the drugs that are rampant in their community, to be able to, you know, have a. a a therapist or a friend or somebody to talk to about, you know, the trauma that they've witnessed throughout their life. So, you know, I think um, it's so complex. That's the issue. It's, is, it's not just medical problems.
0: So you said you, when you hotspot, you look for where these patients are located you can open a clinic in that location are, sure. are these free clinics and how are what's different about these clinics that's helping prevent these super utilizers from going back to the emergency department
1: so the ideal thing would be to open a free clinic but who is paying for that right so i think the hotspotting idea is is to do that and and i think that's i don't think healthcare systems are completely yet on board with providing services necessarily based just on hotspotting data but you there are a lot of grant initiatives that are doing things like um, in response to hotspotting in terms of what can we provide these patients when you find out, tell me, because that's what every, that's really what everyone's trying to figure out right now. So I went to a conference in the fall. It was the first year of it. It was called the complex care conference. And it was basically bringing all the people in the country who are doing this work together. So we could idea share and try to learn from each other what to do, how do we provide wraparound services? And I think that's really what we have to start thinking about is that we have to think about Healthcare for these patients as including things that we don't traditionally think of as healthcare. So, housing is one of the biggest issues. Um, when people are have unstable housing or are homeless, it's very hard for them to stay healthy. Obviously, um, so thinking about housing resources, mental health is the you know in terms of medical problems is probably the number one thing that that would make a huge effect if we had better mental health access and care in this country, that would probably go a long way as well. What we do, I can tell you what we do in our clinic because that's what I know. Um, But what we really try to do is provide one, just a really safe space for the patient. So these are patients who have been kind of given up on by a lot of people. So that we never fire any patients from our clinic. You can no show a hundred times and you'll always be welcome at the clinic. You can be, you know, be, have a inappropriate behavior and we'll just ask you to leave for the day and you can come back when you're being appropriate. So that's kind of just first and foremost is just to not abandon the patients um, to really let them know that we will be here for them and that that's, we will continue to do
2: that. You're going to have to forgive me for being a a little bit naive. It almost sounds like you're, you're not holding the patients accountable though.
1: So I think it's a process you, we don't start with by holding them accountable. I will say that, you know, I mean, I think you have to meet people where they are. So if you take somebody who has been, you know, pretty, tossed around by the system and you say, well, why aren't you taking responsibility for your health? It's, you're not going to really make it that far. And I think that's been the traditional model. And obviously it's not working. We haven't, these are, these are kind of the toughest cases, right? The people that know we we've tried all of our tricks and and none of them have worked. So, you know, the the time for accountability is there, but I think the beginning is just building trust. And I mean, that's really what it is. That's what's so sacred about being a doctor is you have this incredible, relationship with your patients that they trust you and that they are willing to work with you and come back to you and tell you their deepest secrets and their fears you know what
2: what are some of the common characteristics when you when Mm -hmm. you you look at say the upbringing of these these individuals Mm -hmm. what are some of the common characteristics that you've anecdotally found with these high utilizers are we talking about like unstable childhood lack of parental role models what are we talking about
1: Sure. So, um, I don't know if you guys, have you guys ever heard of the ACE, um, test or the ACE score? No. Okay. So it's called, it's the adverse childhood experience. It stands for adverse childhood experience. So it's basically a series of questions. I I can't remember. I think it's like 20 questions and it basically gets at what you're saying, Stuart. So it's, um, what is your trauma? What is the history of trauma in your life? Asking questions from anything from did your parents fight at home to was somebody in your house incarcerated during your upbringing? Were you abused? Were you sexually abused? So it kind of asks a lot of these questions. And almost interestingly, almost everybody in the country has at least one adverse childhood experience. Um, but they really have, a lot of this comes out of more of the psychology or literature, but they, what they've really found is that people who have a score greater than three tend to have more chronic medical problems. Um, and actually, a pediatrician is really the person who brought this into the medical world because he was kind of noticing this happening with his kids as they were getting older. And I can send you guys some, some um, like there's a great NPR segment about kind of the guy who brought this into the medical world.
0: I wonder if this is something that we should just, I mean, just for your run of the mill, uh, not necessarily even a super utilizer, just for your Mm -hmm. run of the mill, I'm thinking about some of the difficult patients in our clinic who are are just high utilizers within our clinic, if we Mm -hmm. should be doing an ACE test on them to try to get under some of the get under the hood of things a little bit, I guess, so to speak, and, and try to figure out like where they're coming from because a lot of patients are just like, and,
2: and that might lead you to trying to talk to like a clinical psychologist. I mean, it, it sounds like when I'm looking through the ACE scores, a lot of this is, so I I do a lot of, uh, I, I don't want to say armchair research, but I, I guess it's kind of what it is on, on borderline personality disorder. And a lot of these are mm-hmm. common characteristics that yes. lead to those high cluster B traits. And so yes. I, I wonder if what we're dealing with here are, are those who Um, I I guess the the males might be called like more uh, antisocial avoidant personality type disorder versus the females, we give them more the borderline um, diagnosis. And, And oftentimes these, at least anecdotally from what I see, that my high utilizers tend to be in, uh, I down one of those two pathways. And sometimes I I find it that I, I treat these patients a little differently, not, not so much as not holding them accountable. I, I actually find I get, I get better results when I, when I, uh, take on more of a, paternalistic role because that that's actually what's found in in some of the literature when you're looking at treatment for like borderline personality disorder a lot of the dialectic behavioral therapy actually yeah. looks at assuming like a paternalistic role and i wonder if utilizing a pater- more of a paternalistic role in medicine might be helpful in in dealing with these high utilizers is this something that that you've looked into
1: so so absolutely i mean i think that to, tr- to try to address a lot, to, one by one things that you said, because you said a lot of really interesting things. Yes, that is definitely something I think that we do a little bit more of with some of the patients. Now, not everybody kind of falls into that borderline antisocial personality um, behavior role. And I, and I don't, um, want people to walk away thinking that every super utilizer has a personality disorder because I think that's an oversimplification. But I think that, in terms of like bo- boundary setting and establishing borders and holding accountability for personality disorder for somebody who has borderline, that's very important. Sometimes what I'll do with patients who I'm having the most trouble with is I will do the A score with them just to change the conversation. So you feel like you've just been talking about the same five things and they're telling you, I'm I'm taking all the med stock, I'm doing everything you said. I'm coming to the appointments, and you're just not moving. And that's when I feel like, well, what is this thing that I must be missing? Because clearly, we are not speaking the same language. And sometimes, so then that's a a time that I will just like what you were saying, Matt. That it's a nice tool just to say, is there something else going on? And then you just say, like, wow, thank you so much for sharing that with me. And let me let me talk to you about what this means that people who've shared in these experiences have a tougher time. And and maybe that's something we need to explore with getting you psychological help or whatever it is. Some of the patients, I I think, are have just been surviving for so long. So not necessarily that they have a personality disorder or that they don't get it. It's just that they've been living in poverty or just struggling that all they kind of know is the hustle or like, or to just do the minimum, right? Just do the minimum to get through. I think thinking about that's where kind of that safe space comes into.
0: Well, Alex, I wanted to ask, because I don't want to take too much of your time, and I know we've been talking to you for a while, I wanted to ask, I've heard that there are some some health systems that are trying to say, okay, we're going to assign a provider 100 or 200 high Mm -hmm. utilizers, and that person is going to follow those patients, whether they're at home, in the clinic, or in the hospital, and sort of just try to really keep a close eye on some of these super utilizers when you were at this meeting, were there any, um, the word I'll use is bright spots, which is something I talked about, uh, just on last episode, basically bright spots being like, you're looking at a system that's not working, but there, maybe there are some bright spots, like things that are working when you were at this conference. Was there any signal, like anything that, anything that was working to help this problem?
1: Absolutely. Um, so I think that, Really, we're in a time of revolution in in the medical field, and the thing that is working and that we we need to accept is that medicine is no longer an individual sport. It's a team-based sport, you know, with the demands that are on physicians at this time in terms of our time and documentation and all the, you know, check boxes that we have to do. There's so much talk about task shifting, about people operating at the top of their license. And I think thinking about super is the perfect time, you know, to kind of change this conversation. There's no way that a physician can do this alone there's absolutely no way. So at my job, you know, we have program managers who are working on programs to help these people on, you know, that who are able to have the time and the resources who are, have gone through school and know how to do things like that. Whereas I have zero training in that, right. So to see a project through, I have no idea how to do that. I I didn't, you know, learn how to be a leader um, in medicine only except on the fly. So I think that is a huge mentality shift that we absolutely need to have in medicine that we're just, we have this concept of only I am special enough to do this job. And I think we need to let that go because that's the way to, to do better. So one physician taking care of 200 supervisors alone and following them everywhere, I don't know how you could do that. You know, I mean, I take care of, you know, in my personal clinic, if I have 10 to 15 people, I I am overwhelmed and that is with a team. So I think e- these are people who need a lot of attention and they need a team based approach. They need an, an MA that they know every time they come to the clinic, they need a nurse that they know that, you know, or a he- we have health coaches that are, that we um, partner with AmeriCorps. And we have health coaches who are basically doing a lot of the social work jobs that I just, I don't want to do, need to do, to have the time to do, you know? So I, I think that that. That really the things that are working are when teams are being used to take care of patients in general. I mean, not just for super utilizers.
0: Are you involved at all in uh, local healthcare organizations or like uh, affecting policy, at least at the local level? Is there a way? And if you are, is there a way you recommend our listeners can get involved in their local community? I know Dr. Brenner, I've heard him on a couple different programs, basically talking about how he thinks trying to change things at the national level is much, much harder than trying to change things locally where you can really have a lot more impact.
1: Yeah, um, absolutely. So this is, that's one of my goals actually for 2017. I've kind of just been getting my feet wet at my job, but um, certainly the, the American College of Physicians, I think does a lot of really good advocacy work and it's, I'm very by bi- I will admittedly say I'm extraordinarily biased towards the ACP because of Daryl and Moyer, who is one of my mentors and who was our program director at Temple um, and who I respect very, very much and who is now the CEO of the ACP. But I think that they really do pretty incredible work and have thoughtful advocacy work. So they're an easy way to get involved. I mean, you can just contact your local chapter um, and they're always having meetings and doing advocacy work and, and they lobby and they go down to DC once a year um, and do lobbying. And so it's an easy way, um, especially as a resident to start. There's another um, organization that I belong to called Doctors for America. There's a lot of different stuff. If you're interested in policy, I mean, there's so much stuff. I think you just have to pick what what you're passionate about, I think picking one piece of the pie is probably the thing to do and just get really knowledgeable about that and then become an advocate in that. And I think Jeff is right. I mean, I think he was one of the interesting things with with his work is that Camden is a really small city. It's only seven, 700,000 people. And so it's been interesting the effect that um, the Camden Coalition, his um, organization that he started, has been able to have on the city because they were able to partner with so many local places because it is a small area.
0: Well, Alex, I really want to thank you for coming on the show. I think this was a really interesting discussion. I had fun. I hope you did too. Of course. And, uh, I apologize for any of Stuart's, uh, behavior. I, Actually, I he wasn't anything. He wasn't too bad. I he wasn't was too bad. Lovely. He was lovely. <laughs> Are you kidding me. See, sorry. Uh, um, it's a force. of. I wanted habit there. worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a force of habit. I've had to apologize so many times. uh, <laughs> Well, Alex, uh, I think I, I anticipate this will be coming out, um, sometime in the next two or three weeks. It depends on, I have a a little bit of a busy stretch here, so I don't know when I'm going to have time to be editing a show, but, uh, anyway, this is, this is really helpful. And I think this is a good first attempt for us at trying to do more of a like health policy topic. And, uh, I think, I think you did a great job. So thank you. You're very welcome. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, Mm -hmm. bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. Or (laughs) amazon.com. We're permitted. we're, We're permitted. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. But to do that, we need your input. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. We actually lost all our iTunes ratings because of a boring and technical reason about a month ago and are now rebuilding that. So please uh, throw us a bone and uh, give, us, give us an iTunes rating. Please. Or you can send us an email to curbsiders at gmail.com and uh, recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show finally you can follow us on our page on facebook or on twitter or instagram at the curbsiders until next time i've been dr matthew Watto. not snapchat i i don't really understand what that is i
2: don't either that's okay <laughs> and i've been dr Stuart kent brigham
0: alex
1: oh <laughs> and i've been alex lane
0: good night good night good night